Today, we have Dr. Mark Foreman, licensed psychologist whom I've known for years and I've known his work for years. He's an extraordinary individual and we cover just about anything that you're interested in or have some controversy around it. It's covered here. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, Life-Enhancing, Paradigm-Rattling Conversations with Cutting-Edge Thinkers, Contemplatives, and Activists, with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. I'm Roger Walsh, and our co-host is John Dupuy, founder of the Integral Recovery Movement. And our guest today is Mark Foreman, probably the world's best-known integral psychotherapist. And that's in large part because of his wonderful book, A Guide to Integral Psychotherapy, which is kind of the handbook for an integral approach to doing psychotherapy. It's a wonderful resource, and I, I actually wrote a blurb for the second edition. Because, and what I said was, it's a text to which I keep coming back to read again for insights into psychotherapy and life. This really is an encyclopedic overview of both psychotherapy and uh, so many of the life issues that all of us deal with. His most recent book is The Monster's Journey from Trauma to Connection, looking at the archetypal hero's journey for people who've suffered considerable childhood trauma. And well, that trauma is certainly a topic we'll be wanting to cover today because what we're going to do with Mark is something that feels really, really exciting is to look at what are the hot button issues in psychotherapy at this time. Psychology and psychotherapy have become such defining metaphors for our ways of thinking, the ways in which we interpret culture, ourselves, history, that what royals psychotherapy really royals our culture. So we're going to explore some of the key issues. And one of the key ones is just the sheer power of psychological thinking in our culture today. Each era is shaped by and interprets the world through a particular perspective, a particular worldview. Many thousands of years ago in prehistory, it was an animistic worldview, the idea that the world was animated by spirits and everything was seen in light of their action. Then there was a religious worldview. Everything was the action of God or demigod or Satan. Then there was a scientific era in which we led to a kind of disenchantment of the world, the seeing of the world as material atoms clashing meaninglessly and really stripped away much of the meaning from our world. And that still rem- those paradigms still remain, but now they've been joined by a psychological framework, a way of looking at the world through a psychological lens and the understanding of the, the workings of, of our own minds. So, Mark, Please dive in. Tell us how did how did this happen? How did psychological ways of understanding come to color our understanding of ourselves and the world? And what's that doing to us? Well, the statistic that I recently discovered and like to kind of capture this is the idea that about forty-two million people in 
2021 or 2022 interacted with therapy or counseling, and this is in America, and that is something like up 20 million people from the year 2000, let's say. So uh, basically a doubling of the population who interacts with therapy. And so this is happening on the ground as a matter of, you might say, practical health care, although we could talk about whether mental health care and health care are always an easy fit. But nonetheless, the confrontation of the population with these therapeutic models and therapeutic approaches seems to be escalating exponentially to a certain degree. And then if you just glance almost any aspect of culture, be it religious culture, artistic culture, comedy, even politics, you will hear ideas that are clearly therapeutically driven. They are borrowing from the playbook of therapy, whether that's a certain kind of empathy for people or a certain kind of assumption of what goes on under the surface. So just as a random example, whenever anybody talks about the homeless population and the issues there, immediately there's a discussion of mental health, which has probably replaced a discussion of these are people who are, you know, unwilling to work or unwilling to put in the labor they need to. Most people recognize they probably have serious therapeutic issues going on, and they do. So it's almost as if therapy didn't exist at this point, you would need to invent it in order to have the most explanatory value. Now, that does not mean that every therapeutic idea applied is a good therapeutic idea applied. So they can be misapplied and overapplied. And to a certain extent, that's some of what we'll talk about today. But yes, this idea of what is going on in therapy now has an almost reflexive impact on what is going on in society because they're that intertwined. I used to sort of quip that the therapist is really the priest for our times, minus some of the hierarchical power but imbued with a certain amount of, let's say, metaphysical responsibility. And I still feel that that's true. So when therapists come out for one position or another, it has a, not even a ripple. It's really a wake that is left in the culture. And so when the therapeutic field airs, let's say, or gets out of balance, that also has an impact and it can be a pretty significant one. And for me as a practicing therapist, really in the trenches, I mean, my, my job is 20 clients a week 
And then whatever else I can fit in that isn't directly client work. So I really do the work of it. And my perspectives are grounded in what I see every day. Unlike, you know, perhaps many folks you've had on your podcasts are sort of thought leaders, let's say, and are, you know, reading, (laughs) reading all the big books and speculating on all the big trends and meta crises from somewhat the the view from 64,000 feet and and down i more come from this this sort of in the office day to day person to person experience and then extrapolate out what i think of the larger culture from that very intimate and in some ways very difficult work of being with people in pain over various things. Yeah, let me just say, uh, well, welcome. I've known you for years and I've always respected your work and you're definitely at the at the upper tier of people who take an integral theory and put it into practice. And I, I wanted to ask you, Mark, you know, you've been a practicing psychotherapist for many years now. And do you notice a basic shift in what clients are bringing to you and what is kind of the, the commonality or the issues that are people dealing with? Or is it pretty much the same, same as it's always been, these, the essential kind of human questions or relationships? Yes. And thank you, John, as well, for having me. If I didn't also thank Roger, sometimes my impulsivity gets me into the conversation before I do the pleasantries. <laughs> I would say that the nuts and bolts of therapy hasn't changed a a dramatic amount. Freud quipped that it was either love or work that people wanted to talk about, and that remains true. And I would say if we wanted to talk about diagnosis, it's depression, it's generalized anxiety, it's panic, panic disorder, it's bipolar, it's eating disorders, it's substance abuse. The big sort of figures on the mental health block have a way of showing up again and again. Now, what might be new is that the politics of the age And so here's where the therapy field is being influenced. We are not influencing so much is that more people would like to talk about politics than I can ever remember. And that really changed around the time of Trump. I mean, I was practicing during 9-11. And although there was a little spike in certainly anxiety and a spike in wanting to talk about what was happening with terrorism, there really was not a change. People stayed more to their private life. Now there is a sizable group of people who will want to, if if nothing else, get off their chest how they are feeling politically. Most of my clients would be on the left but I've got a few on the right, and that's a very fascinating and in some ways very precious thing because I get to hear that 
worldview in a unvarnished way. And as I tell my clients, I'm not there to do therapy on their politics. And so if they feel it's useful every once in a while to vent their political worries, I'm fine to do that. But I would say that is the single biggest change that you notice day to day. Now, with other things like gender dynamics and such, there are other shifts that are quite noticeable. There are shifts that are noticeable in how informed people are. They're often coming in with more knowledge, even if it's a Google-level knowledge. So, you know, the, the internet is having an impact because people, I mean, I've had probably four or five conversations in the last six weeks with someone saying to me, I think I have ADHD. (laughs) And, you know, could we talk about that? Now, when that happens, I run them through the actual diagnostic criteria and we talk about it in a sober, objective way. But people are clearly finding the information and applying it to themselves in a way that they wouldn't have been able to or known when I first started practice in the early aughts. So, yeah. And do you see both positive and negative effects of this kind of popularization of knowledge of psychology and psychotherapy? Yes, I would say it's often nice when a client can already get there themselves I don't know, I just had a conversation with a woman. She said, you know, I know journaling is really good for me and I've done it before, but I'm struggling in in this situation to do it. So rather than me having to start from scratch, oh, there's this process called journaling. What is it here? Let me tell you about it. It could be helpful for you. A lot of people bring in what we integrals would call practices that they've tried, tried a little meditation, tried a little journaling. Maybe they've done therapy before, which can be a significant advantage. So I actually like practicing in this era for that reason, that the clients have connections to the broader therapeutic field or the broader field of personal practice, personal growth. It's rare I meet somebody who is totally therapy naive in the strong sense. And that just makes my job easier. uh, And there's more information to be gleaned because if they were in therapy or if they had been doing journaling, so on and so forth, they usually discovered something and we can work with that, add it in to what we're already doing. So Mark, you just gave us a great description of the way the psychologization of our culture is influencing the work of psychotherapy, making it easier in some ways. What about the reverse? What are the effects of the, one of a better word, psychologization of our culture, the psychologically informed nature of our culture and when concepts become popular, they not only inform, they tend to deform. So so 
certainly we can see advantages to a greater understanding of psychology and psychopathology, the destigmatization of mental illness, for example, the uh, increased power that uh, psychological understanding of ourselves and others gives, the uh, facility with uh, relationships, for example, and knowing the, the normal history of relationships, lots of other things. But do you see a, what do you see as some of the positives and negatives of of this increasingly psychologized culture of ours? Yeah, so I think the you could say it this way, that because therapy has become such a lingua franca of the culture, that it's people will apply it to themselves when it really doesn't apply. And they will apply it to themselves largely without the seriousness that the field intends. I mean, a lot of people have been rightly critical that the DSM psychiatric community will water down diagnoses so they can get more diagnoses, so they can do more interventions and medications. And it's, it, it, it may be motivated to a certain extent by money. But if you read the actual criteria for the disorders, these are fairly serious things. And in other words, you wouldn't want ADHD if you really knew what it was. But people will look at their lives, say, geez, I'm a bit disorganized and scattered, and I don't always love to pay attention, so maybe I have ADHD. And and so they'll take on that self-labeling process without really having the breadth of experience and having sat through the, through the criteria. So I see a lot of my job with this is I go back and I slow them down and I say, okay, these are the criteria. Here are the time frames DSM wants to see them in, or sometimes I'll use the international classification of disease. And we should say the DSM is Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for for assessing psychiatric disorders. Yes, and it's the American version. And then there's the ICD-10 International Classification of Diseases, which has has a similar but not exact overlap in terms of the mental issues, mental health issues that they lay out. So using one of those, trying to slow the process down, trying to do some psychoeducation, this is what it really means and this is what it really doesn't. And sometimes people find out they don't really have it, whatever it was. Sometimes people use bipolar these days very flippantly to describe moodiness uh, when, of course, bipolar is very serious mental illness and such. So that's the downside. And the hope is that they do get themselves into some therapy to get clarified, because it may be that some very serious non-diagnosable issues, let's say, family issues or early trauma or something, later trauma, 
are actually getting in the way and they're the primary cause, not these sort of quick label disorders. So there can be a lot to sort out when you've got somebody who, you know, in a sense is too clever by half about their own mental illness. <laughs> but but Mark, do you find that, you know, when you when you have a, a client who is obviously seriously bipolar, that it actually becomes helpful, the diagnostic statistical manual to help, you know, wade your way through it and treatment and this is what it is. You're not alone in the world. You know, there's a lot of us that have this disorder and you know, we can do a lot. Yes. I, I wrote in my earliest book about the the paradoxical nature of labels. And people often rail against labels and diagnoses and such. But I think that's a terrifically partial view. If you've ever been with somebody who had no idea what was going on, and then they get a good diagnosis, meaning one that really explains their situation, there is a calming and a focus that you can get from that that you can't really get any other way. Relief, yeah, a sense of relief. You're no longer lost in the woods alone by yourself. It's like, okay, this is what's going on. So it's a very powerful experience. Yeah. And maybe we would say the greener elements of our society, the most more postmodern are saying, well, you're going to label somebody and they're going to become a victim. So they're going to live up to that. And that really isn't what happens with people. People don't want to be mentally ill with the condition. They want to be healthy. So they'll take that bipolar disorder diagnosis if it's accurate and they'll start to do the things that they need to do to be healthy. But I would say it, it goes much deeper than that. A name is a label. <laughs> I like macaroni and cheese and I don't like green beans is a label. What we do as a matter of ego formation is this constant taking on and putting off of labels. It's constitutive of the self. So not only are labels not necessarily bad, they are part and part and parcel of the whole process of being a self. Now, if we want to have a discussion about transcendent states or stages and their maybe non-linguistically mediated reality, okay, now we're in a different category of talking about labels. But for the rest of us, labels help, and then they hurt, and then they help again. And it's more a skillful use of labels. So I really see diagnosis as just uh, walking into that sort of balance, tension, dynamic tension, and hopefully delivering something that's going to be useful for people to take on so that they can focus their thinking again, and then focus their action towards, towards mental health outcomes, positive ones. Mark, I want to emphasize what you said about the, the skillful use of labels, because I, I really hadn't 
thought of that myself. I'm embarrassed to <laughs> embarrassed to say, and I certainly hadn't talk, had a talk to talk heard it talked about much. There's usually on either usually it's a denigratory discussion of labels, and yet what you point out is that having a, a label can be a way of recognizing and understanding ourselves and others. And there's even uh, what's called the Rumpelstiltskin effect after the fairy tale. To cut a long story, long fairy tale short, the problematic fair elf or something or other can be gotten rid of by by discovering his name. And when he is named, he disappears. And there is a phenomenon, as, as we find in psychotherapy, with 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 smaller issues, definitely not major major mental health issues. Well, with some smaller issues, if you can just name it, it re- they almost can disappear sometimes. So labels can be very beneficial, and I'm really grateful you're taking such a balanced perspective on them. You also referred to what's known as diagnostic creep, the way in which certain diagnoses filter out into the culture and they get they become more and more widely used and more and more diffuse and less less precise. And that has the advantage of at least alerting people to these things, but also makes it problematic and if people self-diagnose, etc. You have raised a particular kind of diagnostic creep, which is really important and really seems to be happening widely in our culture at the moment. And that's the the uh, with regard to trauma. The trauma, the, the idea of the concern, the worry about trauma seems to be everywhere these days. And every, we're all diagnosing ourselves as traumatized and little issues become labeled as traumas. Tell us something about that. I know you've thought deeply about this. Yeah. And so this has been a moving, not so much a moving target, I would say. It's been a coming wave for a series of reasons over past decades, probably the one of the biggest catalysts was the Vietnam War because mental health professionals had been primed by World War II. I mean, they were seeing people coming back who were healthy on an objective level, but were having severe psychological symptoms that weren't attributable to any kind of brain injury, etc. And then coming back and often struggling to reintegrate into the society because these symptoms seem to be so intense. And this was really the consolidation of the idea of post-traumatic stress disorder, which used to just be called shell shock for the shelling that infantrymen would take on the front lines, let's say, of a war. I would say probably another social event was the satanic abuse scares of the 90s. There was all this sort of focus on childhood sexual abuse. Now, ironically, the large majority of childhood sexual abuse happens in the family, not in these purported satanic cults. But there was a momentum in the 90s that came along and sort of highlighted childhood trauma, let's say. But then what happened was, I think, something that was much more important 
relative to clarifying the idea of trauma. And that was when Kaiser studied its members or a group of its members and actually looked for potentially traumatizing events in childhood in in a group of 17,000 of their members, which is a pretty good representative sample of the culture, although it may miss folks who are in the lower economic classes a bit, but gathers a pretty good sample of other folks. And they found that about 65% of people had at least one adverse childhood event, is what they call it. And that might be physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional neglect, physical neglect, having a parent with a mental illness, having a parent who had substance abuse issues, who was incarcerated, and so on. And so about 10 of these, 10 or 11 abandonment one, if you look into their lives and they'll check these boxes. And what they found was that the more boxes somebody checked, physical abuse and sexual abuse and emotional neglect, say three boxes, the worse their mental health outcomes were and the worse their physical outcomes were. So heart disease, lung disease, all kinds of behavioral issues like smoking, having a very high number of sexual partners with a sexually transmitted infection, et cetera. So kind of across the board. And this was really a watershed moment because it tied something that therapists had speculated upon with the reality that people were actually seeing in the healthcare system. There was a lot of follow-up research and it's been now at least followed up in, I recently read an article about China, 2019 it was published. It was almost the exact same thing. They took 1500 people from a local small city, I believe. And it was the same number, 66% had at least one of these adverse childhood experiences. And the more versions they had, the more boxes they checked, the worse their mental and physical outcomes were. So this is a real good argument for the power of childhood trauma for really correlating, but probably we could speculate having some real causal impact on people's later lives, mental and physical health. So it's kind of like a holy grail of discovering why certain people turn out the way that they do. So that was in 2000 or in the late 90s. And I think that set off another revolution in the trauma world. And particularly you had people like Bessel van der Kolk, who's probably the most well-known trauma clinician slash theorist writing books like The Body Keeps the Score. It's a very popular book on trauma. And it's pushed trauma-focused therapies into the limelight. It's pushed somatic therapies into the limelight. Now, with that said, and the fact that I wrote a book just all on trauma, 
because I felt like the hero's journey motif didn't work as well for those with early life trauma because the typical hero is an older child or a teenager or an adult who gets sort of called to adventure, let's say. They're living in the normal world and then something goes wrong and they, they're off on their adventure. With early childhood trauma, you do not get an invite. You don't get a letter from your owl like Harry Potter. Something goes wrong and you are thrust into this traumatic, typically familial, typically interpersonal, interpersonal in the sense of it's with the persons in your family, you're thrust into that drama and you have to learn to both survive and protect yourself and somehow protect the parts of you that would be damaged if you expose them fully. So the idea of trauma is one that I take very seriously. I think there's a lot more to do and say on it. However, at the same time, when you look at the statistics, 65% of people have these potentially childhood trauma-causing events, which means 35% don't. And of that 65, some portion, probably not trivial, will not develop a traumatic or traumatogenic response. They will have what's called that magical quality of resilience. And that's sometimes an adult in their life to guide them. Sometimes it looks like a certain genetic robustness that they're just able to move through these things. So when you really look at the trauma literature, it's probably just ballparking it. 30, 35% of people who might have some real childhood trauma that really impacted them. And that's a huge group of people. I mean, you know, in, in total numbers. But it isn't this absolute that we seem to be creeping towards now. When I was looking into this, you know, the most probably popular figure in trauma studies is Gabor Mate. So people love Gabor Mate. He's a very sort of almost kind of the archetype of the wise healer. And he talks about substance abuse and he talks about trauma. But when he talks about it, it's as if everybody is traumatized, almost literally. And he will say this, this is a quote, I pulled from him, if you look at the rates of over traumas, such as childhood sexual abuse, et cetera, in families, it's widespread. Very few people really grow up untraumatized in this culture. Very few and 35% or 40% are not at all the same thing. So it's, it's a straight misrepresentation of what what trauma is, unless what we do is we water down the concept of trauma, which is what people like Mate are want to do. 
And essentially the mistake they make, and this is the mistake I've seen for my whole career, is that they conflate what we might call misattunement, particularly with the parents, with trauma. So the parent doesn't fully understand you in a moment and you're crying and sad and the parent thinks you're angry, doesn't know what toy to give you, doesn't know he should pick you up or she should pick you up. And you have a a little rupture in that relationship. Rather than seeing that as a very normal thing that happens in most families with most parents, it's usually resolved. The kids are fine. They're resilient. Mate, like many in the field, paints this as sort of a a small T trauma that people then carry on. And then he uses that as an explanatory model for why people develop severe substance abuse. And to me, this just seems like, as I heard someone once say, look, if everybody is your friend, nobody is your friend. In other words, if everybody is traumatized, no one is traumatized. The word loses all its meaning because it just then basically means we all have this general sense of disease in our lives caused by interactions. And more than that, Margaret also also means, and I think this is what you're pointing to, that the concept loses all predictive power. If we're all traumatized, then then attributing psycho in psychological or somatic disorders to it is is illogical, inappropriate, and meaningless. Yes. So it would wipe out all that research and the very clear dose-response relationship where the more childhood trauma objective boxes you tick, the more health conditions you get, the more mental health conditions you get. If you, yeah, include the, the whole population, you would wipe out that effect, basically, or you would, I don't know, statistically exactly what that would look like, but essentially you would really reduce that research to nothing because now you're studying people with no childhood trauma. So the research says, no, this is a select group or a subpopulation And we really have to take that seriously. And I think if we start to take it seriously, some of that diagnosis creep of being traumatized will start to recede. What I tell people sometimes who come in with a trauma story that isn't really a trauma story, I'll say to them, you know, that sounds like it was very upsetting to you. And that's legitimately upsetting. I'm not sure it's a trauma. You know, I'm not sure it's so woven into your psyche that you're going to need specialized care to to try to unwind it and overcome it. Mark. Yes. I just wanted to, to put in here, you know, I work with uh, alcoholics and addicts uh, for years. And often you'd have people come in talking in a group and they would say something like, Oh, we're all addicted to something. 
you know, to try to make everybody feel better, you know, take away the shame of I'm an alcoholic. And often students would get angry. Like, no, your your connection to your cell phone is not the same thing that I had when I was crawling through the streets at night trying to find a fix and selling my body. You know, you really don't get what addiction is. And and it was an effort just to, you know, well, we all have issues and we all this and that. And they didn't like it. You know, they felt that these guys didn't get them at all. I, I was also wanted to ask you with all this knowledge of trauma and differentiating from what's trauma and not. And I found it with my my students that were were addicts or alcoholics and not everybody that abuses substances as you know is an addict or alcoholic we go through a phase we drink too much said okay that's enough we move on or we we mediate moderate rather yeah but when when you have this thing it, it's either you get the diagnosis right and once you get it and there's a lot of resistance okay i'm an alcoholic therefore i have to do this and such and it can come as a great relief but the other question was have you found with this increased knowledge of trauma and its events that your the way you deal with it has changed or evolved over the years of your practice? Well, I think that I also, you know, they talk about something in therapy, which is self as instrument, which I think is an important concept, at least if you don't absolutize it, which is basically the idea that, you know, you are sitting there as kind of the resonance fork for your clients. And so the more you know about yourself, the more that you're going to be able to pick up in your clients. Now, there are limitations to that. We're never going to have every diagnosis, but it's helpful to know your own stuff. And for me, I saw trauma in my practice, but I didn't really recognize it until I started to recognize my own childhood trauma, went through these checklists, attended therapy with somebody whose expertise was in this field. I actually attended therapy with Janina Fisher, who is something of Bessel van der Kolk's right-hand woman on the clinical side. She's now retired mostly, but she was a very good psychoeducator and did a lot in that realm and taught me about trauma. And I carry her influence, you know, in that way. And in some ways, it's not unlike the spiritual traditions. You learn from a guide and or at least that's how I learn best is is watching a guide work with me on my stuff gives me ideas on how I could work with other people. Now, not not one-to-one because sometimes people need different things, of course, but I have become much more trauma aware in that sense, more careful, more respectful of it. Because as you say, when you really go through a childhood trauma for real, you know, it isn't this small thing that people talk about sort of flippantly. It was usually something very bad. Not only the thing itself, but the age you were at combined to make trauma. I call it living in the timeless 
trauma or in according to the thesis of my book, which talks about the monster archetype living in the timeless monster, which is to say, when you're in a childhood trauma situation, you don't have any memory of before and you don't have any speculation about the future. Those concepts don't exist developmentally for you. So you are just in what you are in. You are in forever for a while until your development catches up and you can start to see, no, wait, this could end because things end and life moves on. But that period of having no sense of relief and no sense of a prior normalcy is really what I think is the the defining feature of the trauma when you're young. And it's no light thing. It's not something people should take up without contemplation in the sense of taking up that, that label. You know, you take that label if it fits. If not, look for other labels. And that's one of the beauties of your your book, Mark, the, the book, The Monster's Journey from Trauma to Connection. You really lay that out very clearly. And I think you just gave us a beautiful description of the differentiation, differentiating between real trauma, particularly childhood trauma and the bad day in the nursery or whatever <laughs> that gets labeled. And I'm curious about the the dynamics of what are the forces that are making the trauma label so popular. One of them, to look at a not so healthy one, is that the to, to be traumatized is one can, as you pointed out earlier in the discussion, you made the very important distinction that one can use wisely or misuse labels. And seems like part of the reason for the misuse of the of trauma and traumatizing, seeing so much trauma, particularly in oneself, is is to use it to absolve oneself for responsibility, and also some people would say to you know to play on the victim role. Uh, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I would say there's no doubt that post postmodern society has a basic formula for all its diversity. And it's something like language is constitutive of reality. The language we use is influenced by issues of political power, essentially. And so we have to change the language in order to change the culture and to redistribute power. And so one of the things that falls out of that definition is that people who are powerless are encouraged to take up the mantle and find power in their powerlessness, let's say. Now, I would not throw that idea completely out the window because there is something to it. You know, the marginalized of society deserve a voice and they ought to get one. However, what it encourages other people to do is take on any victim stance that they can. I mean, 
there's almost a playbook at this point of people who are otherwise incredibly privileged. Something happens, they get divorced, they write a book, they go on Oprah, <laughs> they talk about what a trial it was psychologically and mentally, and all of a sudden they've joined the victim class, even though they're multimillionaires and the best looking people in the world and gainfully employable, etc. I mean, that sounds cynical, but I'm cynical about it at this point because it's almost like a performative transformation into the victim. So basically, if we can find a victim stance, we can take back some power and find an identity in this postmodern world, which otherwise likes to deconstruct identities. So, you know, you can get a, a movement that dislikes all medical psychological diagnoses that dislikes what like me we may talk about the concept of male and female because it's too constraining etc so if you take away a lot of the the typical identities what are you left with you're left with the victim one and it becomes more and more attractive and i know we were planning today to talk a little bit about the role of the therapist and I would say the role of the therapist is to somehow take some of this kind of irresponsible world building and kind of ground it back in some sensible categorization. Well, Mark, what would that look like? In other words, you have this, this cultural thing that everybody's a victim, except if you're a white straight man, as far as I understand it. So what, what is a better story or what is a better way to react to this? And say you have been, you know, traumatized and yes, you were a victim. You were, uh, you know, a young child when this happened. But what is a, instead of just buying into the, you know, the rest of your life, you're the victim. What's the story? How do you work with that? Yeah, the story is to a certain extent, while you validate people's pain, let's say, you offer them a more moderated narrative that is not quite so fire and brimstone. So a few minutes ago, I said, you know, I often tell clients, what you experienced was upsetting. Yes. Trauma means something else. Trauma means there's been a lasting imprint on your brain your body, your nervous system, your psyche. And that is so serious that we are potentially looking at something that you could have for your entire lifetime. I don't think your interaction with your friend where she rejected you rises to the level of that, but it's certainly upsetting and would cause you to have trust issues and, and so forth and so forth. So let's talk about the actual thing itself, trust issues, how do we judge friendships, how do we know when it's safe to be vulnerable, who do we want to protect ourselves from. Those are good psychological categories to focus on. They're very meaty and practical, 
none of them have to do with whether there's going to be these eruptions from child parts that are traumatized, et cetera, et cetera. So this, the, the skill is to somehow get in there, don't tell the patient that nothing happened, but give them a new frame that's really more practical and a better fit. And, you know, we were going to, I know we were going to talk a little bit about the super shrink literature, which is the literature about technically what, what constitutes the most effective therapist. Now, one thing that constitutes the most effective therapist is early on in the therapeutic relationship, the client will not necessarily rate the therapeutic relationship very highly at the beginning when compared to another therapist. And I think part of the reason that that, that is, is the, the more skilled therapist is asking more questions, is laying back more to really get the situation, and is not trying to score easy, empathetic points. You know, oh my God, that's so terrible. I can't believe that happened to you. Sort of instant, oh, I'm you're a victim and I'm I'm gonna minister to you. Now, obviously, you might hear something like somebody's parent passes away and you know, sibling, I have a client whose sibling got murdered. You know, you're gonna say, oh my God, that's terrible. And that's a horrible thing for you to go through. But a lot of the material that people share is not so dire. So you want want to stay in a more neutral space at the beginning until you can figure out what it is that is really going on. And then you want to check in with the client and say something like, Okay, so based on today's session, what I'm getting is that the most serious issue in your life is blank. And then you want to get that affirmation from the client. Yeah, that's the most serious issue. Or no, actually, there's something else. Or there's two or three things that are all very, very serious. But, you know, isn't it, isn't it sort of slightly ironic it's it comes back to the listening skills and it this conforms with the data on CEOs CEOs don't go in there telling people what to do they often ask a tremendous number of questions before they act in a in a business scenario because they know that they don't know the right information yet and they need to get there and they're willing to appear ignorant or not knowing they don't have to appear like they know it all which is a temptation as you probably know when you're working with people there's always a temptation to be Dumbledore where you've got all the answers or Gandalf but even Gandalf would say he doesn't know what's happening and he's got to go research it so yes it, hopefully that answers the question yeah. 
We're rolling now. Stay tuned for part two, where we continue to dig into the depths of what it means to be alive and awake on the planet right now. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.